Your learning muscle is your ability to continue to learn regardless of whether or not you are in a formal classroom, regardless of whether you are registered for a degree, whether what you do is accredited. It's your ability to continue to learn and the desire to want to learn. The relationship between a parent and the school starts with trust, starts with a buy-in and an expectation of what the journey is going to look like. And I think that that trust is maintained through honesty and open conversation. One of the things that we see is this paradigm that change is bad. Too much change is a bad thing. And when there is too much change, it creates instability. And within an unstable environment, you can't expect your staff or your child to thrive. If you're worried about the teachers leaving, go and ask the tough question. Why are they leaving? And if you're getting an honest answer, I think it maintains the trust relationship. Stay calm when teachers are leaving. Educating all of our children must be one of our urgent priorities. From Solid Gold Studios, this is EduThink, the show that explores education in South Africa. Here's your host, Gavin Kennedy. In today's episode, we're talking about teachers. Not simply as teachers in the way we usually mean teachers, but instead, teachers as professional employees, and how this aligns with their task of preparing children in their care to be a part of the future world of work. Joining me in the studio, I have two guests with many years of experience between them, and they will share their insights, ideas, and suggestions with us. Andy Deverell works for Nedbank in Human Resources and looks after organization design and change. Welcome, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. And Gershom Aitchison is a regular visitor on our podcast, and he's headmaster of Education Incorporated, a private boutique school in Four Ways. Welcome back, Gershom. Thanks for having me again, Gavin. Let's start off by going back in time to when we were at school. Let's be at high school and remember our favorite teacher and the subject we did with him. And then come back to the present, where it's time for your child to go to high school. And as luck would have it, they're going to your alma mater, and your favorite teacher from all those years ago is still there teaching the same subject. How does that work for you, Andy? Well, I don't think that works very well at all. Um, apart from giving away my age here, I think if any of my favorite teachers were still around, I would have severe reservations about their ability to have kept up with teaching methodologies, with the content, with the world, and really just with change in general. Gershom, as a headmaster, is this the kind of teacher you would like to have at your school? It's a yes and a no answer. It's yes if it's a teacher with 25 years of experience. The kids are still engaged in the class. The teachers kept up with the content and the knowledge and the skills that are required to be a, 
a good teacher. On the other end of the scale, we have people who seem to be job hopping. Andy, in the corporate world, how much of your time is spent replacing people who leave soon after joining? I think a great deal of time is spent on that, but it also varies, and it varies according to the department and the age of the person. There are certain areas in the corporate world and the bank specifically where we have a higher turnover of staff, and that's considered normal. Also, the greater the talent, the harder it is to hold on to people. What we do, instead of trying to keep people in, is we try and maximize the time that they're there and try and make sure that while they're there, even if it's for a short time, we get the most out of them and we get them leaving with a positive experience and wanting to come back. So you're not a destination, you're just part of the journey. With you for a period of time, go somewhere else, learn some skills, come back. Absolutely. In fact, there's been a massive change. In the past, everyone used to think a bank was job for life. You joined the bank, you worked there forever, you got your gold watch, you retired, and that was your life. We no longer look for long lifers. Your career is now part of a portfolio career, not a once-off job where you start and end. And in fact, although we do have people with significant tenure, it is certainly not the trend in which we're going. So in the corporate world, I think there is an optimal time to retain someone and also what I'd like to refer to as a minimal viable time. If someone is job hopping and they're coming in and they're only staying a short while, for example, eight months or a year, you generally don't get the best out of them. The period that when they first start, that induction period, it takes them a while to get used to the culture and the climate, to understand the internal workings, to get used to the people, to build relationships. You generally find that after a year, people really start performing. They really start to navigate their way around the organization better. So we wouldn't really want to see people leave before a year. Ideally, what we're looking at is a two to three year period for very high talented people who want to be job mobile, who want to move around, who are actually looking at improving their skills through talent mobility. So anything less than a year, I would say we've invested a little bit more than we're getting out of them. But two to three years, I think we've got our money's worth. And I think that those people have learned enough for their time in the bank to have been useful for their own personal and professional development. I agree. For us, it's a, a calendar year plus. So if a teacher joins us halfway through the year, it's the six months plus the year after that. The school operates in a, a cyclic process, a January to December. And we look at that when we're looking at the optimal period as well. For us, in a similar fashion to the bank, it is about a three-year First year getting to know what needs to get done, the second year innovating and getting it done well, and the third year is a well-oiled machine. We then need to look at what's next and to provide more challenge. Absolutely. I'd like to say that it's not really that we're saying that every two to three years you want your staff to leave, but every two to three years you certainly want people to stop and take stock of their development and how to improve, how do they get to the next level. It doesn't necessarily mean a promotion. So growth can be lateral, not just vertical, but you do need to start thinking about what's next. How do you improve your skill set? So in a bank like NetBank, you can seriously have six careers and never leave the bank, and that's great. What we don't want is you to have one career, one role for 25 years and have made no movement, no growth, and no ability or no effort to try and reinvent your skills and become future fit. It's very interesting. There's a, a big move towards finding your mission. And 
I think that's something that we try and instill in the students, rather create your degree about what you want to do and the changes you want to make in the world. And I think it's part of what needs to happen with the staff as well, the new teachers coming in. In three years, what decisions do you need to make towards your mission? And when they start teaching, it's about the money, it's about the experience and about the CV. And once you're in that role and once you've got a handle on it, you can start asking the questions, what now? Where do I go next? And am I actually making the difference that I wanted to make? Does job hopping lead to people being promoted beyond their competence? It can lead to that. I think what job hopping is really about for many people is about getting to the next salary increment. Once you're in a corporate or in a job, it's very hard to get salary growth that is anything more than incremental over time. You have your short-term and long-term incentives which try and balance that reward paradigm. But in terms of your overall salary or cost to company, it's unlikely you're going to get more than a 5 to 7% increase year on year. The only way to up that and to get an exponential or a step change is to leave. So what happens is people, especially who are in demand because of a scarce or critical skill, will come in, they'll do a year or two, and then they'll look for another job, which will give them a 20% increase to move over. Very much industry standard, you would move for a 20% increase in cost to company. What they then do is they stay there for a year or two, then move to the next, and before you know it, you're in a very senior management position without having embedded any change or any real delivery within the organization, and you may find yourself out of depth. Is this something that happens in education as well? Do teachers, do you find yourself with a teacher who's been through three, four, five schools and arrives and actually doesn't know how to teach properly? Yeah, I refer to them as mercenary teachers. It's about the paycheck, it's about the promotions, it's about finding the straightest path with least resistance to being a headmaster or into a management position. And you can see it on their CV, it looks very well constructed, there's a lot of, they interview very well, there's a lot of lip service and they often question the ability to deliver. Andy, what are some of the good and bad reasons that people leave before the minimal viable period is up? I think often people leave because it's a bad culture fit. You know, you interview and you get a certain sense of what the organization is about, but once you land and you're in the job, it can sometimes be something that doesn't resonate with you, may not resonate with your values, your sense of right or wrong. Maybe the people aren't what you were expecting. So I think when there is a culture misfit, it probably is a good idea to look elsewhere. From an organizational perspective, I think where we go wrong is we don't actually get the right person for the job in terms of job fit. So in other words, we'll hire you based on your ability to do X, but when you land in the job, we ask you to do Y. So we haven't been clear on what it is that we want you to do and what we want you to deliver. You come into the job and all of a sudden it's not what you expected or it's something that you can't cope with, and that really is a reflection on the organization of a bad hire, or alternatively, it's a good hire, but where the person is placed is an environment in which we have not followed through properly. So I think there are good and bad reasons. At the moment, we are seeing people leave for more practical or logistical reasons, relocation, immigration, moving to different industries. Also, the competition is absolutely massive in banking. We have a lot of fintechs, we have new entrants to the market, new competitors, and sometimes opportunities come up. And quite frankly, you can't blame people for wanting to go somewhere new and exciting and do something different. Are you experiencing something similar in the schooling? I have three buckets that I put the people leaving the organization in. The first one is 
exactly like the banks, immigration, retirement, you know, moving provinces, spouse, moving provinces, going with them, etc. The normal attrition that you would expect. The second bucket is the teachers that are looking for the promotion, the people who've been there for three years, part of their, their path and the career path that we're encouraging is to go out there and essentially they're leaving as disciples, which is a very good thing. And then the last one is the regrettable hires. And it comes from two parts. You know, you, you've been very gracious in saying the organization hasn't done the job properly, etc. But if a mercenary is sitting there looking at the bottom line and telling you exactly what you want to hear so they can get that pay, but yet they can't deliver. And I think it comes down to honesty and speaking directly with each other and meeting minds. I'm not sure how you do that and get that level of trust with strangers so that there's a meeting of expectations so that everyone's delivering on what they say they're going to deliver on. Possibly creating scenarios that are very real and seeing how people react to them. But yes, regrettable highs. And for me, it's about reducing the amount of time they're in the organization to get the right hire in. If we can do that within one term, I think we've done our job properly. If we can do it in one month, even better. If a regrettable hire is hanging around for six months to a year, there's a lot of damage happening. Let's talk about damage, impacts and disruption of transition, people leaving, other people coming in. A big difference appears to be that education is far more calendar-based. You start the year in January, you end in December, you have three or four terms. If people come and go, what's the disruption and impact like for a school? As a departure point, I think it's very important to state that the Education Act requires teachers to give a terms notice. And I think that's recognition of the level of disruption of a teacher leaving mid-year. Good teachers see the year out, and it's properly planned and the succession is planned properly. Personally, I think it's very selfish if teachers are leaving for bucket two, which is for promotion and self-development before the year is up. I think they do have a responsibility to their students, and I think that speaks to what being a teacher is all about, and understanding that you get the job done and see your kid till the end of the year. Why would a teacher leave partway through a year if they're supposed to give notice? What's the cause? What's causing that cascade to start? So people bandy the term brain drain around, and we're experiencing it. Teachers are one of the most sought-after commodities around the world, and teachers can get into most countries with an expedited visa. We are seeing good quality teachers leaving the country, and as a result, immigration happens when immigration happens. If your visa comes through, you go in the middle of the year, the middle of the term. We then find that positions are being advertised in good private schools, better salaries, teachers want to jump ship, get into opportunities, maybe it's a lifetime dream to get into that position. Sometimes there is a conflict in their lives between a three-term and a four-term school, and that often causes a challenge. Once a teacher is hired in midterm because of circumstances, it creates a cascade effect because now we as a school are looking in other schools for teachers. We're not looking necessarily for graduates. And that's where the challenge starts coming in because it just becomes a spiral. And how does this affect or impact parents? I'm sure you get... Stressed out parents arriving on your doorstep, what's going on? Why is there a teacher change halfway through the year? This is a very interesting part of the conversation. And if I could put a hashtag next, would it be one of the biggest contradictions in teaching at the moment, in schooling and education? What parents say they want and what they think they want. And they'll come into the office in the interview, in the application for the school, and say, I want my child to be creative, innovative, be able to solve problems. I want my child to think out the box. And then a week, a month, a year later, why is the teacher leaving? Why is your teacher turnover so high? 
the question then becomes, what industry are you working in? What is your turnover rate? So there's a, a conservative expectation that Mrs. Jones is going to be sitting in that position for 25 years, even though it's not in the best interest of the child or their education. And the contradiction comes in with, I want my child prepared for the future, but I want it done in an old-fashioned style. And it's often a reflection on the parents' educational experience over the years, and they're living their child's educational experience through their own. And we're finding that part of the educational role that the institution or the school has is not only educating, preparing the children for the future, but helping the parents understand what the road is and the journey that we're traveling and what vehicle we're using to travel on. I think that I absolutely agree with you. One of the things that we see is this paradigm that change is bad. Too much change is a bad thing. And when there is too much change, it creates instability. And within an unstable environment, you can't expect your staff or your child to thrive. What we're finding in the corporate world is that the entire world is based on change. It is the only thing you can be certain of. What we'd like to promote is that change is inevitable. Change is a good thing. Change is a driver of progress. And what we need to create are people who can adapt to change, who can thrive in a changed environment. When children are raised in an environment in which there is very little change and they are protected from all sorts of change and from adapting to circumstances by parents who really only want what's best for the child, it's very difficult for that child to enter a workplace and then live through all of these changes that come about fast and furiously and not see this as, as a stumbling block. So one of the interesting parts of this conversation is that when parents apply for a school, they don't apply because Mrs. Jones is working there. They apply because they believe in the values of the school. There's a trust relationship between the institution and the parents. Yet, when the teacher leaves, it's implied that the trust relationship is between the parents and the teacher. The organization will outlive any teacher any day. It'll be there a lot longer. And I think that it's important to remind parents that the relationship is with the school and the organization. And the trust is there. So trust that we are also going to make sure that in the best interests of the child and the education and where we're taking them, that the replacement teacher will be the right person. And it's going to be inevitable and it's going to happen. That's fair, but I think we also have to take into account how much change is acceptable within that environment. I know from a corporate sector, if we have a department with an unusually high turnover, we will go, we will investigate, but it is indicative of a problem. Absolutely. So if you have teachers leaving, as long as it's not the majority of teachers, as long as it's not an abnormally high number of teachers, I think your points absolutely apply. Parents do have the right, as do management within any company, to investigate when there is a higher than normal level of turnover and try and understand what's going wrong. So I agree with Andy that if it's abnormally high turnover, then we need to investigate. So if we're using words like normal and abnormally, is there some kind of percentage that constitutes normal? I think it's industry-specific. I think it's level-specific. There are different levels and years of tenure that are average or normal for managerial staff, for senior managerial staff, for general staff. You normally find that the higher you go in management, the longer the tenure is, and that's what you would expect. You need a degree of institutional knowledge. You need a core of people who can lead the organization, who understand the market, understand the organization, have a sense of history, but it doesn't apply to everyone. 
So at the outset, we talked about a teacher who had been around for 30-something years, and then we talked about the job hoppers. So a mix of those seems to be what you're saying is normal in the corporate world, in education as well. We can't have a school only of lifers, long-termers, and we also can't have a school only of people who come and go every year. Do you have a feel for how many of each? Is it a 50-50? It's a good question, Gavin. I would look at optimal tenure, and I would say that teachers within their first 10 to 15 years of teaching, if we get three years, I'm very happy. If they're in management, I'd like to see three years of teaching and then perhaps the movement up or laterally into different responsibilities. I think that the curators of the values of an organization are part of the leadership, but also some of the people that have been there for a while. And there's no proper curatorship if everybody is moving every three years. And it can't just be the founder or the owner of the business or the CEO who creates that space in that culture. Otherwise, it's very contrived. So I think a good mixed balance of where the person is in their life, what their aspirations are, what their qualifications are, what their mission is. I think it's a lot more complex than just putting a number on it. And I think that we're going to see a lot of changes. What was normal five years ago is not normal now. And what's going to be normal in five years' time is going to be very different from what we're seeing right now. Andy, you said change is the constant. And education seems to be one of those things that changes more slowly than other industries. There is a, a very popular video by Sir Ken Robinson called Do Schools Kill Creativity? And in it, he goes to great lengths to explain how schools are getting it wrong because their purpose has changed. The purpose has changed. They were originally designed to get people ready for an industrial world. Sit in straight rows, be obedient, be there on time, the rote learning. All of that was purposeful in its time. That purpose has changed. The world has changed. Education is lagging. What should we be doing? It's very easy to throw stones and say, well, it's not working, it's all wrong. But what is the solution? What do we do differently? What kind of people do you now need coming out of schools, coming out of universities to be successful in a corporate environment? I think it's common cause that there is currently a mismatch between what's leaving school and what you want to enter the corporate world. What is the ideal that you're looking for to come out of the educational institution? What characteristics do they have so that Gershom, as a head of a school, can realign or adjust what he's doing to fit that new paradigm? In addition to being adaptive, which I've already discussed, I think one of the most critical skills for the future world of work is learning agility. Now, learning agility isn't just the ability to learn, but it's also how you learn. So in the past, we always thought learning was in the corporate world, leaving your office, going to a, a hotel or a nice venue where there was food and coffee and having a lecturer or facilitator lead the learning and you leave the room at the end of the day or at the end of the week and you can tick, I've been trained, I've been developed, this is great, I can add this to my CV. We're learning more and more that that kind of traditional formalized training is actually not the best way to learn. Experiential learning is far greater in terms of impact. If we're looking at on-the-job training, we're looking at exposure, mobility, being shown and allowed to participate in different projects, different parts of the organization. That's really where you want to go. And quite interestingly, if you think about learning agility, a great analogy is to liken it to a muscle. We all know it's a good thing to keep fit, and we all know that you have to exercise to stay fit. 
No one really cares what the exercise is, whether you run, whether you cycle, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you maintain that fitness. Learning is the same. Your learning muscle is your ability to continue to learn regardless of whether or not you are in a formal classroom, regardless of whether you are registered for a degree, whether what you do is accredited, it's your ability to continue to learn and the desire to want to learn. Certain companies, for example, AT&T in America have taken this to the next level. And I know it's money dependent, but what they've done is they've given every single employee access to $8,000 per annum to study anything they want. And what you study is irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it's not in the telecoms industry. It doesn't matter if it's not related to the core business of what you do, of how you do it. If you want to go and do a flower arranging course, if you want to go learn to do something completely different, if you've decided, actually, I've been doing HR my whole life, but I actually want to pursue engineering or coding, you're allowed to do that. And their view is it doesn't matter what you learn, the fact that you keep learning and that you're interested in learning creates a person who is agile, who is adaptive, and that's the kind of person who adds value and who can take the organization to the next level in the changing world. And in fact, some countries are doing it as a standardized form of adult education. So Singapore at the moment have a basic government grant. Every single adult in Singapore can apply to the government for money to study something. The entire country is absolutely aware of the fact that adult learning is critical to being able to adapt and stay relevant, and they are now enabling that through government finances. What's really interesting, although completely not relevant, is that the vast majority of people in Singapore, if you look at how they're spending that money, they're spending it on learning to speak Korean. And that's because all of the TV programs and the shows and the music is in Korean. And the vast majority of people in Singapore want to be able to understand in that language too. But does it matter? Does it matter what you learn? As long as you are interested and you have the ability to learn, you can stay relevant. Andy, I get it. All the books we read, all the magazines on business, these are the topics that are being talked about. This agility, this flexibility, this ongoing learning. But the school system here currently still says you go to school for 12 years, at the end of it you sit down with a pen and paper and you do a matric exam and we grade you on that and then we send you on your way. The amount of relevance that that has to what you're looking for is fractional. As a headmaster with people in his care, Gershom's got children in the school, he's got parents coming there saying, I want my child to be ready for going to work with Andy somewhere. What can he do differently? and yet stay within the constraints of the education system we have. I, I presume we're talking supplemental stuff. You can't just go, well, we're going to drop English, Afrikaans, and maths, and we're going to do agility and learn Korean. We still have to work within the framework we have, but what do we add on top of it? What would you look for in addition to a matric certificate? So for me, it's not what you teach. It's how you teach. You've got your kids. You've got your captive audience. They're sitting there for a certain number of hours a day. How do they learn? What mix of learning methodologies are you using? Are you bringing other people in to teach them? They can't be taught by only the teachers in the school. That isn't a valid representation of the world we live in. What about peer-to-peer -peer learning? How are they learning together? How do we promote, and this is huge for us at the moment, teamwork and collaboration? These are words that we throw around like buzzwords. We must collaborate. Everyone must collaborate. What does that mean? And how do you do that? 
And it becomes very, very close to the bone when you start talking about collaboration and linking that to your performance management and reward. So if you're talking about a team delivery model, it's one for all and all for one. It's no longer just about you as an individual. We find a lot of kids who come from school are so used to being individually driven and individually rewarded that they find it hard to work within teams and to collaborate in a way that allows everybody to benefit without the superstar rising to the fore. So I don't think that we need to totally relook school and education and the subjects and all the rest of it. I think we need to start looking more at methodology and how we actually get the kids to integrate with one another, with the outside world, how we bring technology in. There is no reason in the world why you can't Skype an expert in for an hour to have a guest lecture or a guest exercise, why you can't with virtual reality take kids outside the classroom without ever leaving the school. I think it's time to think more innovatively about how we teach. Gersh, I know the teamwork thing is a, a big thing for you. What are you doing at EduInc with teams? It is one of the biggest bugbears for teenagers at school. I do all the work, someone else gets the marks. So one of the things that we've done at EduInc is we have an hour a week where Jacqueline and myself sit with the grade four, fives and sixes or the grade sevens or the grade eights and nines. And initially in the first half of the year, it's about study skills. The second half of the year, it's about teamwork. It's about project management because that dovetails with teamwork and it's about further education, be it in a MOOC, be it an online training course, something like that. We're going to make sure that they've exposed to it. We were recently overseas in Dublin on a tour with a whole lot of other private schools, and we visited Google, Facebook, and Twitter. And in one of the reflection sessions afterwards, this group work came up, and it was a very heated topic between the students and the teachers that were present. Heated not because there was a disagreement in what it's all about, but heated in the effect it's having on their studies, the deliverables, basically, and the marks they're getting, and the frustration about people who get away with not doing anything. Right now, I've got two projects running at school that are school projects, that are my projects, but I've put the kids in charge to see where it goes, and I'm trying to see if there's guidance that happens. I've asked them to be very clear on the expectations of the roles, who's doing what, what the reward is going to be if someone's done the job properly, just so that we start understanding how people contribute and work in the team. And it's been very interesting watching the two different approaches. The one team started immediately by allocating roles and responsibilities and working on that and people were going off in their own different directions and then coming back together and reporting to each other. The other team went as a group, looked at what the project was all about, threw all the ideas on the paper and are now in the process of dividing up the work and the responsibilities. So I'm going to be very interested to see which one is more successful, which one creates more conflict, and use that as a means to educate the students on how they can do that within the school and the projects that some of the subjects require them to do. I think that's great. And I think what's also exciting is getting students to come up with their own ideas and to try and be more self-motivated and self-managed in terms of what they learn and how they learn. In the workplace now, if we look at our learning and development agenda, the vast majority of it is self-directed learning. Sitting at the end of the year with your line manager and saying to them, well, you didn't send me on training, or I wasn't developed. The onus is on you as an individual to find something that interests you, something that's relevant and useful, 
and then to go and find the information and to look it up and to actually make it happen yourself. You own your career. You own your learning path. Too often, children are given projects, given tasks, told what to do. They aren't given the opportunity to go and find the information, follow their passion, and make it happen for themselves. And I think that's something that we could definitely start looking at differently. So we've got three major stakeholders in education. We've got the pupils, we've got the parents, we've got the educators. And it seems we're not necessarily all on the same page right now. And we need a common vision. And I know that you have a lovely framework that you use, which might be useful for schools and parents and pupils to understand what the end game looks like. Our end game is your beginning game. And I'd love it if you could expand on that for us. Excellent. I love this analogy. So I want you to start thinking in your mind about dashes, dashes and hashtags and pies. In the past, what we wanted from people in the very beginning of the workplace was a generalist. So think of a dash, just a plain dash that indicates a generalist skill where you could pretty much do a bit of everything. Over time, we started to realize that generalists just weren't fitting for the new world of work because we needed specialist knowledge. So we then said, actually, what we want is a vertical, an eye-shaped person, someone with deep knowledge about something. And so came the advent of the specialist and the deep specialist. And that's the kind of person you wanted to hire. At the moment, we're in a position where we're saying, mm, it's not either or. We can no longer afford to have a generalist versus a specialist. So now we've taken the dash and the I and we've put them together to make a T. And we talk about T-shaped skills. We want people who are generalists, who can work cross-functionally, but with a specialization. And just as we're starting to explore this, the rest of the world takes off and says, well, that's also pretty old school. Actually, in today's world, you can't just have one specialization. You have to have two. So now think of the pie sign. You've got the generalist at the top and you have two parallel specializations. So you are an expert in more than one field. And just when you think that it was starting to get too much and there was no ways we could ever get these kind of people, out comes the hashtag shaped skill set. Now this is when you have generalist skills, you have two deep specializations, but you have another form of generalist skill which relates to your soft skills. And what this talks to is your EQ, your ability to work in a team, your ability to lead people, your ability to function as part of an organization, a community, a society, someone who is well-rounded. We're saying that the talent and the leaders of tomorrow are people who are equally good with the soft skills as they are with the hard skills. So from pure generalist to specialists to double specialists and now to people with two specialities, generalist knowledge, and high EQ and social skills. It's a tall order, but it's definitely the way we need to start thinking about how we adapt our skill sets and what we train our children to experience. And I can imagine as people be going through serial careers, living longer and uh, having these career changes every decade or 20 years, we're going to look at a much busier hashtag, more verticals and, and possibly a few more horizontals we haven't even considered yet. You know, they talk about the 100-year life. And we know that as time goes on and medical advances are made, people are living longer. And the longer they live, the more they have time to do things. Now, it's scary. I mean, for one thing, I can't afford to live to 120. I certainly haven't saved enough money for the 100-year life. 
But regardless of the retirement implications, who really wants to do the same thing for 80 years? The mind boggles. You would stagnate. You would get bored. So we're looking now at careers that span years, but don't require you to only have one area of interest across your entire life. They call it a portfolio career. So you might start as a teacher and then say, well, you know what, what really interests me in teaching is the, the geography work I do. And then maybe go into GIS and do a stint in GIS. And after that, realize that there's another spin-off from that. And to keep going career to career to career, and the big move is that you don't always need formal education to get you from the one career to the next experience, recognition of prior learning, these things count volumes when you're looking at these moves. But you need to be open to it. You can't think because I trained to be a teacher, I will always be a teacher. And conversely, for people who are trained in very specialist skills, it's always an option to then convert and become a teacher. Doesn't mean forever. For a few years, move on, keep learning, keep adapting. In the 100-year life, the Hashtag gets busier and busier. At the start is what you're inheriting from Gershon and other schools. But what does the hashtag look like at the end of school? Currently, a matric is just a single stripe on that hashtag. How do you flesh that out on a school level so that the person is at least understanding the concept of hashtag, the portfolio analogy? I think that's a very pertinent question, Gavin, and I think it starts with the teachers. Their portfolio should look like a hashtag. I think inherently teachers have got that second horizontal layer because they're working with people and the EQ has to be well developed to do that. I think the second vertical leg is going to be about being a professional teacher and developing the teaching skills rather than some more content knowledge. When the teachers are doing that, they will understand how to transfer some of those skills and knowledge to the kids. And I think that private schools have the opportunity within the curriculum, especially in the younger grades, to start instilling this as a habit from young. And I think that private schools are also in a position that they can create circumstances and situations for students to see this as part of their lives already. So we get to the fun part of the show where I give you a magic wand. Andy has a magic wand. You get to wave it and tell schools what it is you want. I want graduates, I want children who come out of school who are able to think independently, who can adapt to change, who have learning agility and a passion for lifelong learning. I want children who want to learn more, who want to succeed, and who are able to do that in a way that is beneficial not only just to themselves as individuals, but to the people they work with, to the organization that they work in, and to the communities they serve. Gersh, as a head of a school, you wave your magic wand. What changes to make this outcome possible? The magic wand moment for me is perhaps that teachers themselves as well as parents start realizing that the role of a teacher has changed. Teachers used to be the custodians of all knowledge and the experts. They no longer serve that function. And yes, teachers do have knowledge, but there's a lot more accessibility via the internet, via other resources to get that information. Teachers are often uncomfortable with that because I think they perceive that some of their power and authority has been taken away. And I don't think they realize that in facilitating education, they are going to be more empowered and empower students more. To give you an example of where I see this going, looking in the crystal ball, 
I see that your child is going to have 20 teachers in one year. And most parents at this point are gasping. Horror. Virtual reality is going to make a significant difference in the learning in the classrooms because it's very real. Virtual reality hijacks your senses and gives you access to the experts. So you will have 20 teachers, the expert on that topic, the person who has that knowledge teaching your child for that section of the work. And the teacher in the physical classroom is going to be looking after the child's needs, making sure that the bathroom breaks are happening, making sure the work's being done. But the expert is going to be somewhere else in the world. If you had a choice between getting expert driving lessons from Mr. Snaymon down the road or from Hamilton, who would you choose? Put the VR goggles on and have the lesson by Hamilton. And then have another lesson by Nelson Piquet. Very good drivers. Of course you would choose that. So there needs to be a shift in how kids are going to be exposed to the knowledge, the skills, the content that they need. And that the role of the teacher is not going to be the expert. It'll be the facilitator, the person who is making it happen. Their responsibility is going to be to find the experts to give the best lesson on that specific topic. You know, I so love that analogy. And I think in the corporate world, it's exactly the same. Just because you have excelled in your career, just because you are at a senior management level, doesn't make you the expert. We no longer have that entire perception or the expectation that someone is an expert or that someone knows everything. The challenge is to shift from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Know-it-alls are out of date as soon as they've learned. Whatever you've learned today in three, five years' time, it's probably not even relevant anymore. Things change that fast. But if you are a learn-it-all, you can remain competitive. So as with most discussions on education, there's no quick fix. This is a complex problem. It's going to take a complex solution. We do, however, have some metaphors, analogies, some framework that you've given us today, which make it easier to understand the outcome, to understand where we're going. So to wrap up, Andy, are there any last thoughts, anything that parents should just hang on to as they go through this change with their children? I think the message is a positive one. I think in the past we haven't had the luxury of being asked to contribute to how schooling works. There is an appetite for change, an appetite for innovation in the education space that hasn't always been there. And I think that we're in a great position to maximize and to leverage that. And it's not in isolation. It's the corporate world. It's government. Everyone has a role to play. And I think the time is right to be pulled together and see what should change and how we can enable the change. I think that the relationship between a parent and the school starts with trust, starts with a buy-in and an expectation of what the journey is going to look like. And I think that that trust is maintained through honesty and open conversation. And my last words are, if you're worried about the teachers leaving, go and ask the tough question. Why are they leaving? And if you're getting an honest answer, I think it maintains the trust relationship. Stay calm when teachers are leaving. We've got this. You've been listening to another episode of EduThink. Thank you to my guests, Gershom Aitchison and Andy Deverall, for sharing their extensive knowledge and ideas with us. For show notes and previous episodes, visit solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash EduThink. Until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.